what we're saying is that we want a strategy like the on the podium for agriculture and so that means that we've got to do some work as, as a sector as an industry to, to get our, our, our thinking aligned and, and make sure that it's understandable but what we want from government is uh, a move away from this sort of piecemeal approach and to have a really whole of government i know that's a very ottawa term but a whole of government approach where all the government departments that are involved in any way with agriculture um, have a collective mandate to really move the sector forward. Hi everyone and welcome to episode four of Fireside Chats with Aaron. I'm your host Aaron Gowerluck. As Executive Director of the Grain Growers of Canada, I started this podcast to serve as a forum for real conversations with industry influencers and policymakers. Today's conversation is all about how Canadian agriculture can own the podium in 2021 and beyond. We will explore what that means and what it will take for agriculture to rebound and thrive as a sector in a post-pandemic world. Joining us today is Pierre Patel. Pierre is the President and Chief Executive Officer of CropLife Canada. CropLife Canada is a trade association that represents Canadian manufacturers, developers and distributors of pest control products and plants with novel traits. Pierre, thank you for stopping by for a fireside chat. It's great to see you again. Great to see you too, Aaron. Thanks for the opportunity. Never before in my lifetime have Canadians spent more time talking about where our food comes from. Um, we've heard even more about this now over the last few months, largely due to the pandemic. I know that CropLife has conducted significant research in this space, tracking how Canadian consumers perceive our sector and, and what influences those perceptions. What impact, if any, do you think the pandemic has had on the Canadian conversation around food? Well, yeah, thanks, Aaron. Um, I think for the first time, uh, consumers in Canada saw, even if they were only short-lived, they saw, they saw shortages of certain products on their grocery shelves for the first time in their lifetimes. And I think it, it, it hit home to them that, wow, there's actually uh, you know, a, a whole agriculture system behind this and a supply chain and there can be potential impacts of things like, like a pandemic. And so I think for the first time, people are starting to wonder and, and talk about where that food comes from. And, and I think this is an opportunity for us. Um, we know that the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity, who does extensive polling every year, they, they show that 93% of people know, know little or nothing about farming. And that a good two thirds of them want to know more. And they want to know more about how their food is made and, and where it comes from. So, we think this is a great opportunity, actually. As, as negative as this crisis is, I think agriculture is poised to really tell its story. And, you know, your members in particular um, have the story that people want to hear. They, they want to know about how farmers are growing their food, how they're uh, doing it sustainably and protecting the land. And, and they, it's a great opportunity to really tell that story. And, and you've been having that conversation lately in leadership circles about what it's going to take to ensure that our sector is poised to contribute to the post-pandemic recovery. Some economic reports released by the government, as we, we well know in recent years, suggest that the sector has yet to reach its full potential. You recently used the word uh, or the term on the podium, and uh, this is to capture what our sector is striving for. I think most Canadians will remember this expression from the 2010 Olympics, but can you tell me how this concept can be applied to Canadian agriculture? Yeah, so, and again, I, I probably stole that, uh, that uh, moniker from someone else, but I, I, I think it, it really resonates with where we are today. 
that that description on the podium, you'll know, everyone will recall, was when Canada hosted the uh, 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. And the previous two Olympics in Canada, in 76 in Montreal and 98 in Calgary, uh, Canada failed to win a single gold medal in either, either one of those Olympics. And so this strategy was developed to really uh, invest and uh, put, put uh, Canadian athletes at the forefront and give them everything they needed to succeed. And the result is that uh, we didn't achieve the top, uh, top uh, medal win, but we won the most gold medals of any, uh, of any other country. And it was the first time in 50 years that the host country had done that. And so uh, it was a huge success. And what the, the reason we use that term is that when we talk about agricultural uh, innovation, whether it's, whether it's regulatory reform, which I'm sure we'll touch on, it's, it's done sort of piecemeal. You know, you work with this department on this issue and, and another group works on another with another department on that issue. There hasn't been sort of a, a government-wide uh, concerted effort to really help agriculture reach its potential. And so what we're saying is that we want a strategy like Neil on the podium for agriculture. And so that means that we've got to do some work as, as a sector, as an industry to, to get our, our, our thinking aligned and, and make sure that it's understandable. But what we want from government is uh, a move away from this sort of piecemeal approach and to have a really whole of government, I know that's a very Ottawa term, but a whole of government approach where all the government departments that are involved in any way with agriculture um, have a collective mandate to really move the sector forward. And, you know, when I look at our member companies, um, you know, Canada is not the biggest market for, for, for these products, for, for pesticides or uh, innovative seeds. But it is a, it's a market where farmers are quick to adopt. And we've seen tremendous success in the adoption of all the latest technologies, all the latest uh, seed varieties. Uh, Canadian farmers, your members, are they, they want those new techniques and, and new technologies and, and they're quick to adopt them. So, so our members are poised to bring those and, and continue to bring them to Canada. But we need a, we need a, a business market and an environment, business environment that is attractive and predictable and has timely decisions out of the regulatory system. And so there, there's a lot of work to be done in, in some of those areas. And it, just to make sure that Canada doesn't fall behind uh, its competitors. Um, we've seen that... Uh, We've seen that, uh, you know, for example, the, the voice of farmers with government is critically important. And um, maybe we can talk a little bit later about our digital advocacy initiative to, to, to really give farmers that, that voice uh, to, to be right into Ottawa. Thanks, Pierre. So you, you've identified a few different stakeholders there, and I want to unpack that a little and, and, and get into some specifics if we can. Um, the role of government. Um, the role of industry, your members in particular, and and the role that that my members, that farmers across the country can play in this. Are there um, are there any existing forums um, through which some of this um, some of these goals could be accomplished? Uh, certainly, with government, we uh, you know regulatory improvement is nothing new, and we've we've seen a number of different initiatives. The uh, the, the government formed the economic advisory tables last year or a couple of years ago now. And the agriculture one came up with a series of recommendations and regulatory improvements was one that was identified as a key priority. We also saw the Canadian Chamber of Commerce release a report, Death by 130,000 Cuts, and it was really highlighting 
the regulatory burden that Canadian businesses are under. And we participated in that. And there's a number of examples in that report that highlight specific to the ag sector, what some of those burdens are. And so there's already been a lot of work done and, and uh, identified areas that, that are, are ripe for improvement. What we need now is that sort of push and the momentum to really make it a priority. And, you know, coming out of the, the COVID crisis, uh, we know that governments around the world are going to be looking for uh, economic successes to help them dig out of this um, this hole that we're going to be in. And and we think that agriculture is a, is a great industry. And some of these reports in the past have really highlighted the potential there. And so we'd like, uh, we'd like this government to really take a look at how um, how they can position Canadian agriculture to really help the whole Canadian economy after this crisis. In terms of um, in terms of farmers, I, I touched on a little bit this, this uh, voice in Ottawa. When you look at the makeup of Parliament today, um, there's over 300 MPs sitting in, in, in Ottawa. There's only a handful that really have strong agricultural background or understanding, and so. These are the decision makers and policy makers. And so any time that your members, that growers themselves can, can help tell sort of the positive story and, and, the, and the work that they're doing on their farm, that really helps uh, crystallize some of the asks that the groups like ours are making here in Ottawa, because now they're putting a face, there's an actual family there behind that. And there's an actual industry that's, uh, that's trying to move things forward and make things better for their kids and so on. So I think, um, you know, when we work together uh, with Green Growers of Canada and others um, on, on trying to leverage the, the, the farmer voice, it's really about giving them an opportunity to tell their story. And, and things like Real Farm Lives is one, one initiative that, that we've done. Um, Advancing Agriculture is one that we're going to be launching uh, shortly with, with Green Growers and others to, to again, provide an, a, a vehicle for growers to help tell their story here in Ottawa. And I think... The flip side is that the activist groups have really excelled in this and they've leveraged their grassroots movements and they've been able to attack modern agriculture quite successfully. And so we need to be, uh, we need to be able to counter those, uh, those voices that, that don't understand and don't want to understand the benefits of modern, modern farming. And it's interesting that you would touch on that in terms of the exposure or the experience that our policymakers in Ottawa have with agriculture. Um, I had the opportunity to sit down with Senator Diane Griffin, who's the chair of the Senate Ag Committee a couple of weeks ago, and she identified the same challenge. Um, few, if any, senators uh, have a farming background and very few MPs have a background in agriculture. So there's really an opportunity, I think, as soon as our members can get back into the nation's capital again, to begin having those conversations with policymakers about, uh, about agriculture. So thanks for thanks for identifying that as a as a key role that we can play. I know it's one our members enjoy playing. Yeah. You mentioned the need for regulatory modernization um, as a key component to owning the podium in 2021. This is a role for 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 government. Um, but for most part, um, for the most part, our farmer members are are export dependent, so they're constantly navigating um, a competitive international landscape. Can you explain what types of reforms you think are needed here in Canada and how our regulatory environment may compare to other jurisdictions? You know, I, I'm thinking uh, more recently about the decision that was taken in, in the United States with respect to how they were going to regulate um, gene-edited plants um, by comparison to those um, 
um, genetically modified. Um, can you talk a little bit about what may be required here in Canada and what's happening in other jurisdictions around the world? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, plant breeding is is a ever evolving area, and and there's a we're on the cusp. We're, we're not more beyond the cusp. We're we're at a point in time where there are new techniques um, that that can get us to where we want to get in terms of the, uh, the genetics of, of various crops much, much quicker and much cheaper, to be, to be frank. Um, and, and, uh, and, and it opens it up to, to so many more companies that, that are able to do this type of work to, to get the, the traits that, that, that really the farmer and the end customer is looking for. And so uh, companies are investing huge amounts of money in, this, in these new, techni new techniques like gene editing that you've mentioned. And our Canadian system, while it has served us well, and we've seen tremendous um, out outcomes in, in, in GM crops, I mean, canola is just one example, um, we've seen a number of, uh, what we're, the problem right now is that we're, we're frozen in that there's no predictable path to get these gene-edited crops approved in Canada. And the, the timelines are, are, are not predictable the pathways are not predictable and the data requirements are also not unclear. And so we've been working for quite some time now to try to unblock that and get some better clarity to, to enable those. In the meantime, countries like the US, like you mentioned, um, have done the same work and have done the same analysis and have said, you know what, uh, this type of approach is not really any different than traditional breeding. And so if you can achieve the end result through traditional breeding, using gene editing, well, then we're not going to put a heavy regulatory burden on that, uh, on that uh, innovation. So, um, so what you've seen is some clear pronouncements out of the U.S., and you've seen the investment that followed very quickly. And so we've actually seen Canadian companies, company just outside of Ottawa, with its own brand new innovation, wanting to develop it in Canada, wanting it to, uh, the, the science to be developed in Canada, the innovation in Canada, and then the value added that grows from that all in Canada, they've actually moved that introduction into the U.S. because they, they, they couldn't get the predictability they needed in Canada. And so that's the kind of thing that we, we certainly don't want to see Canada being left behind. In fact, we want to see Canada at the forefront. And because we've, we've like I said earlier, we've been an early adopter of technologies and it has been very successful for Canadian agriculture and uh, both in, in terms of profitability, but also in terms of environmental sustainability and the practices we've been able to implement here in Canada, such as reduced tillage, no-till, um, have had a, a significant impact environmentally. And so we want to see that continue and we don't want to see other countries um, you know, move ahead of us and, and, and take those innovations because at the end of the day, the food that's grown from those crops in the U.S. are going to be imported into Canada and all we're, all, the only difference is that we're going to have lost out on all of the investment at the front end and all through the processing and value-added parts. And so we want to make sure that over-regulation or lack of nimbleness in, in the regulations are not barriers for, for, our, for our members and others. So uh, that, that's the main thing on, on the front end. You mentioned trade. Um, the other issue we have is that you know we've got all these... Uh, free trade agreements signed with you know, some of the most populous areas in the world. And as a trade-dependent country, that's, that's exactly what we want to see. Um, TPP, as, as a prime example, is the latest one. But when we sign things like CETA with the, Euro with the European Union, um, 
that's great. And on paper, it sounded excellent. But, you know, before the ink is even dry, you've got Italy sort of stopping Durham wheat imports um, for basically a non-tariff barrier that should should be, um, it shouldn't be allowed in under CETA. And so what we're saying is that government, it's, it's not enough to just sign these free trade deals because sometimes the, the tariffs aren't the biggest barrier. It's actually the non-tariff barriers that are the challenge. And so we want to make sure that they enforce those and that there's pathways in those trade deals to ensure that countries can't do things like Italy did with, uh, with, with Durham wheat. That, that was unacceptable. And we want to make sure that um, that Canada can really reach its full potential in terms of uh, export markets. And let's talk a little bit more about the European Union. Um, for several now, years now, we've seen the European market, driven largely by, by public perception, move away from, from science-based policy, um, evidence-based decision-making. We've seen a movement uh, towards a hazard-based approach, which is essentially employing the precautionary principle, as opposed to a risk-based approach, which is what um, we here in Canada rely on and essentially um, the trading world, for the most part, relies on. In late 2019, the EU released its farm-to-fork strategy as part of the European Green Deal. Most recently, we have seen a proposal from France to begin characterizing crop varieties developed through gene editing as GMOs. So this is taking a different approach than the one taken in, in the United States, for example. Can you tell us a bit about what's been going on in the European Union and the impacts that this sort of direction is going to have both for European farmers, but also for our export-oriented farmers here in Canada? Yeah, I mean, Europe is a bit of a, of a conundrum for sure. Um, if you look at uh, their approach to biotechnology, um, they decided long ago that uh, genetically modified crops, uh, for the most part, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, would not be uh, grown in, in, in Europe. And so what you saw is the investment companies, even some of the big member companies like BASF, German-based companies, moving all of their biotech investment and, and innovation and scientists to the U.S. Um, to develop the markets elsewhere because they knew that there wasn't a pathway in Europe. Um, we also saw uh, farmers just not having access to those tools and yet you know, having to compete on the global stage. And so the end result is that, again, sticking with, uh, with grains, uh, you, you see that the EU livestock industry, poultry and feed, um, are about 70% dependent on imported grain. And so, you know, they don't grow GM technology, GMOs in, in, in Europe, but they import billions of dollars worth of it uh, to feed to their, to their livestock. And so it's, it's a very um, disjointed approach to, to agriculture. And so we're seeing the same thing on, on pesticides. They're constant attack on, on technologies and banning of, of technologies. And you saw it really hit a crescendo with, with glyphosate where... Even the, uh, the evaluation uh, group, the European Food Safety Authority, said, yeah, there's no, there's no safety issue with glyphosate. It should be renewed for 10 years. Um, they reluctantly um, renewed it for five years, and now that's already two years ago. And so we're going to be back in the same battle about, you know, should glyphosate be renewed in the European Union in just a short time. So the, you're right. It's been eroding over a number of time or a number of years, and... Um, their approach is that, you know, they strip the tools from European farmers uh, and then frankly they, they use subsidies to kind of help bolster their, their lack of productivity um, 
and and they replace the lost productivity with importation. And so uh, the concern from our perspective is that in this latest farm to fork strategy, um, there are some positive elements in there, but it, it's, it's again disjointed. On the one hand, they want to see more self-sufficiency. They want to see um, a better uh, environmental footprint of agriculture. They want to see addressing agriculture, helping to address climate change. And yet it, 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 it talks about, well, we want to see 50% reduction of pesticides in 10 years. We want to see um, organic agriculture grow to 25% of, of acres. Well, sometimes those two do not mesh. That organic agriculture and climate change, uh, agriculture benefiting climate change are, are, are not synonymous. And so, you know, by producing less on the same land using organic practices, you're not achieving your climate change targets. And removing things like glyphosate would definitely not help their climate change strategy because now tillage is really your, your go-to tool for, for weed control. And so, uh, you know, we would have liked to see sort of the ideology set aside and focus on the actual uh, targets like climate change, uh, sustainability, that kind of thing. But unfortunately, the ideologies are, are deeply rooted in the U.S. in the EU, and uh, and this is a challenge. And so, for an export market, export destination, um, it's problematic because um, you know now you've got talk about removing residue level uh, you know, MRLs, which which allow us to import export our, our commodities that are grown using some of these technologies. And you've got a lot of pressure in Europe to say, well, if we can't use those tools here, why would we let uh, other countries you know, export their their product to us with with those. So this is this is an ongoing challenge, and it's going to get uh, more acute in the coming years. And uh, we certainly don't want to see Europe dictating agricultural policy for the world and telling all the rest of the world which chemistries they can or cannot use, because we have complete confidence in our regulatory system here in Canada, in the U.S. and elsewhere. Thanks, Pierre. So back to Canada for a moment. We, we, we talk frequently in this sector about, about trying to unite the agriculture sector to speak with one common voice. From your perspective, what does this mean and why is it important if we're going to try and get the attention of this government? Well, it goes a little bit to, uh, to the earlier comment about the makeup of the, of the current Canadian parliament. Um, you know, especially in, in, on the government side, the liberal side, there, there are literally a handful uh, of, of MPs, senators that you would, you, you would say have enough of an agriculture understanding to really have a deep conversation about it. And so you can imagine all the different sectors in Canadian agriculture with each their own particular set of, uh, of asks, of issues, so from livestock, poultry to crops, and then even within crops there's a huge diversity of of issues and challenges and so so on the receiving end all they hear is a lot of mixed uh, messages and, and it's, it's hard to see a common vein sometimes through all of the different issues We're comparing horticulture with grains and oil seeds with livestock and so what we see quite often is is inaction because uh, you know it's, it's too it's too complicated agriculture is too complicated to really make meaningful uh, changes to so they throw a little bit of money here and there um, and, and, and hope, it, you know, hope it's, uh, that, that, that's sufficient. I think we as an industry um, need to do a better job collectively on agreeing to at least some high-level messaging and some high-level asks that 
that then on the receiving end, they can start to see commonalities. So it doesn't matter if it's the uh, livestock sector that's in to meet with them or grains and oil seeds or horticulture or others, that there's a, there's a common thread that they start to recognize, oh, okay, so um, here's the regulatory reform bucket. And for the grains and oil seed sector, these are the specific examples. Uh, livestock, grain, again, regulatory reform is critical. And here's their particular examples. And so, um, so I think there's there's work to be done um, with groups like ours, Aaron and, and, and others around the table here in Ottawa, to um, to really help uh, make that that ask clearer and more concise with uh, with the government. And maybe as a as a final question. Um you know, this podcast was was developed out of a need to continue the conversation between our farmer members and policymakers during a pandemic period when, when trips to the nation's capital simply aren't possible. And, and we're, we're having this conversation also with our industry partners like, like CropLife. Given that traditional approaches to advocacy and outreach are simply not possible right now, um, this year I see CropLife took a different approach to your annual Spring Dialogue Days. And I wanted to ask you a bit about a couple of things. Um, one, what it was like to move from those, those face-to-face meetings that you're accustomed to having every year with your members and policymakers, moving to a virtual platform. And then also what some of the key takeaways were from this year's conversations. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Uh, you know, certainly uh, these virtual meetings don't replace the face-to-face um, feeling and, and the outcomes that you get and the kind of you know, the hallway conversations and uh, frankly over, uh, over a glass of beer or wine, uh, you know, you can really get to know the industry partners much, much better. Um, so for us, this was a hopefully, um, you know, a, a one-time thing or at least um, an evolution, but I, I, you know, we certainly would love to see us get back to, uh, to face-to-face uh, discussions. Um, yeah, we moved our, so our spring dialogue days are typically, there, there's a lobby day component, there's a number of committee meetings, and there's a senior sort of policymaker or, or industry leader session. And so what we decided to do is, we actually moved some of our lobby day meetings to virtual. And so um, our government affairs team and some of the members actually had Zoom meetings like this with a number of, of elected officials and, and, and staffers. and. Um, and it actually went pretty well. It, again, it doesn't replace the face-to-face uh, contact, but it enabled um, several of our members at a time to interface with an elected official, um, have a few questions and, and get some feedback from them. And, and it actually, we've we got very good uh, feedback from that, um, from that approach. And we're actually gonna continue that for the next uh, several weeks and into the summer um, to have some additional meetings with, with elected officials and, and senators. Um, and then for our senior government uh, afternoon, we, uh, we hosted that, like you said, uh, last week, and, um, and it went very well. We had uh, you know, uh, Karen Beattie from the Chamber of Commerce, we had uh, Kurt Vossen from Richardson, and, uh, and Chris Forbes, the Deputy Minister of Agriculture, and, uh, and you know, Q&A and a facilitated session like this, and, and it went pretty well. Again, um, some of the feedback we've gotten was that... Uh, the advantage of doing this virtually is that it enabled a lot more people to participate. We typically get about 140 attendees at our Spring Dialogue Days. We had 349 uh, registered uh, participants in, in our virtual session. So, so it certainly opens the door to much broader audience when you do it this way. So I think, um, you know, when we look at this, our lessons learned, we will we'll probably consider 
a virtual component, even as we move back to more face-to-face conversations, just for that that element of being able to uh, to have a broader reach and, and to uh, to include more more people into the conversation. And and uh, that's great. And uh, and thanks for inspiring some thought around what we could be doing now, as as the situation in which we find ourselves continues now for the coming months. Can you tell me a bit about what some of the um, the key takeaways were from the conversations that you were having this year? What were some of the highlights? Yeah, so we um, we asked uh, Perrin Beatty to really talk about, so, he, you know, they, they, they manage, uh, Chamber of Commerce has 200,000 members, and it's really the business voice of Canada. And so we tried to, we've been working with them quite a bit to, to insert the agriculture voice and component into that broader discussion. And and it's uh, it's encouraging to see that it doesn't matter really what sector you're in, the resource sector, for example, uh, the parallels to agriculture are, are very clear. And so it really helped to have the chamber sort of amplify our ag-specific messages and broaden it and bring, bring much more um, influential groups, frankly, to, to the table as well uh, as part of the discussion. And so, so Perrin talked a lot about um, the need for regulatory modernization and, and competitiveness. That's their big issue at, at the chamber is the competitiveness of Canadian business. And so it fits very well with what we've been pushing with our partners. And, um, and so, yeah, he had some, you know, some good insights in terms of how do you approach a, uh, how do you get a whole government approach? And as a former minister, his, his, his guidance is, is, is always appreciated. Um, and so we're going to continue to work with that, with the chamber on, on trying to really get some momentum with, uh, with, with the government. Um, Kurt Boston, as, as a Canadian uh, grain handler and, and input provider, um, his perspectives were, were, were very interesting because here's a, a um, here's a company that's uh, Canadian rooted that that competes globally, and so he touched on a lot, you know a lot of the trade issues and uh, and it starts right here in Canada, so infrastructure and making sure we can get the grain from where it's grown to the ports and then onto ships. And he talked about some of the challenges with that, and then the predictability. Um, he also raised some of the things around Europe and. and it's great to have a, a, a trade deal on paper, but you need to have the predictability so that when he's sending boatloads of product uh, across the ocean, that he's not suddenly um, encountering a non-tariff barrier that, that costs the company a tremendous amount of, of, of money. So uh, he talked a, a lot about that and the regulatory uh, regulatory reform that's needed to, to really enable Canadian agriculture, broadband access, uh, a bunch of things that are near and dear to, I'm sure, your members' hearts as well. And then... Um, the Deputy Minister of Agriculture, you know, they've been, uh, to their credit, they've been having uh, very frequent calls with industry that we and, and several actually participated on as well um, to, to keep the sector uh, briefed and to hear from the sector in terms of what the challenges, the immediate challenges were dealing with, with COVID. Um, and so that, that's, been a, that's been a positive interaction with Agriculture Canada. I think, um, you know, personally, we'd like to see Agriculture Canada have uh, a bigger voice uh, when it comes to with Health Canada and other regulatory departments. Um, and I think that's part of that whole own the podium or broader initiative is that um, it, 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 it can be driven by one group like AAFC, but they also have to have the, the, uh, the pull or the push to, to really bring those other departments along with them. And so, um, so we talked a little bit about that and he understands the regulatory challenges. Unfortunately, they're not the regulatory department. And so, Sometimes I think the AFC finds themselves in a, a bit of a, a tough spot, but um, but certainly uh, Chris Forbes has been 
uh, been very good at, uh, at uh, helping helping the sector and, and making sure that our voice is, is carried to the, to the ministerial level and others. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a good uh, good session overall. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for this. This was a great conversation, Pierre. Nice to see your face again and to connect. Great to see you too. And hopefully, we'll be uh, back in our in our office building. In, in, in sometime in the near future. Anyway. It would be nice. We just moved into our new Grains HQ, which we were very excited about with what we've got six organizations now all under one roof. And shortly after we did that, we were all sent home. So yeah, and you guys are just a few floors down from us. And I'd love to, uh, to come and see your new digs once things uh, get back to normal. We'll have a housewarming party when we're allowed to do that. <laughs> thank good. you, Pierre. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the fourth episode of Fireside Chats with Aaron. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another special guest. In the meantime, if you want to stay up to date with all things GGC, please follow us on Twitter at Grain Growers or on Instagram at Canada's Grain Growers. Until then.